Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word. Lord, we ask that you would guide us by your spirit, Lord, as we study this text. May it not just be head knowledge. We ask for heart knowledge, heart understanding, Lord, that we would apply these truths in our lives day in and day out. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. It's interesting that the subject of love come from really from Genesis to Revelation. This this idea of love comes up over and over and over again. We've we've already seen it in Romans chapter 12, this this idea of loving one another. And then it comes up again. And as we transition to the rest of Romans, we're commanded to love. But then as we get into chapter 14 and the end of the next chapter or this chapter and start the next chapter, uh, there's going to be issues that Paul's going to deal with that are unique to, to within the church in Rome. Tension amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ there. And the key to living them out deals with love. Uh, Over and over and over again, we're commanded to love. And so here, as we begin this section, the very first phrase, there's a couple things that need to be dealt with. It starts out with, oh, nothing to anyone. This is a phrase that many teachers have used to say that a Christian should, under no circumstance, under any condition, be in debt. I remember I often refer to it as a, as a funny story, but there was an outreach that we did with Miles McPherson a number of years ago. It was when we were still at the rock. My father-in-law was on the staff and it was at, I think they changed the name. It was Coors Amphitheater down in car for the 4th of July thing. I think they changed the name and, and we pull in and we see these like four guys at all the entrances holding signs saying Miles McPherson leads people to hell. And so what better thing to do than to go talk to them? And so we had a very fun and engaging conversation. There were two of them on opposite sides of the corner. I was talking to one. And our main thing was basically to talk to them so that the people entering wouldn't talk to them and that there'd be no confrontation. And so I'm talking to the one. My father-in-law is running across to the other guy who's a leader asking him questions and then coming back to this guy and says, your leader's saying this. And we're, we're creating this 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 conflict amongst them. And finally, we reached the point where my father-in-law is like, hey, I really want to go to heaven. And, and, and I, I want to be right with God. Like, I've given my life. What can I do? And so the guy starts asking him a series of questions. And he says, well, are you in debt? And my father-in-law is not in debt. Like, he, like he owns his house outright. He's like, I'm in not in any sort of debt. And the guy's like, certainly you're in debt. What about your mortgage? He's like, listen. My, my mortgage is paid off. I, I drive junk cars. They're all paid off. Everything is, I don't even have a credit card. And the guy's like, hmm. 
Because if you have debt, you can't go to heaven. Miles is in debt. I know that they're, they have, you know, whatever, all this stuff. And then finally he looks at my father-in-law and he says, but you're on staff with Miles? And the guy's like, I don't think there's any hope for you. Like, no, just if you're on staff, then you're out of luck. But I remember the guy, like, that was the first time I'd re- sort of heard this idea that if, that, that, that the Bible teaches that a Christian should not be in debt, should not have a loan ever under any circumstance. And many take it from this passage that says, owe nothing to anyone. Seems pr- pretty clear cut. Uh, the, the reality is, is that owe nothing to anyone. The context isn't even really money. It's love. But I feel that we need to sort of look at this. To, to, does the Bible command us as Christians not to ever take any sort of debt? Certainly, if you can live debt free, I'm a huge Dave Ramsey fan. I think striving to get to debt free and being wise with any debt that you take on, trying to pay it off. I think that's being a good steward. Um, if you're in a bunch of debt, anybody who's been in debt, don't raise your hand. But you know that if you're in debt, I'll raise my hand. It's like you're in bondage. It's like payment after payment after payment. When I joined the Navy, I, I, my, I wanted to get another car. There was a Jeep. I wanted to buy the Jeep. Easy financing, E1 and up. I, I didn't know anything about interest rates or anything like that. And I, I was taken. Like I got in a huge amount of debt and it snowballed. So being in debt is not ideal. It, debt, debt may be necessary, certainly like for buying a house could be necessary. Buying a car could be necessary. It may not be wise. Not every loan is created equal. I think we saw this in the housing boom and then collapse. The, the Bible speaks a lot on borrowing money and lending money. And so certainly this passage, in light of the context of all of the scripture... It can't say not to ever borrow money because if you read through the whole Bible, there, there's, there's conditions. If you loan somebody m- money, you should do it with a fair and reasonable interest rate. So, so I really have heartburn, you know, doing all these ride-alongs in Escondido and kind of being down there. There's a bunch of these easy check cashing or payday advance loans. I don't know what the interest rates are, but it's, it's robbery. So I don't think that that's honoring the scriptures. And I think if you're going to enter into a loan, the Bible gives a lot of like wisdom, like say, hey, be cautious because what you're entering into, make sure that you can pay it back. It also speaks, it was interesting to me in my study this week, the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is just a fun word to say. Don't you guys say Jubilee? You feel happy. Why was the year of Jubilee such a happy thing? All debts were forgiven. But do you know that the Bible instructs followers of God during that time that if you see a person in need before the year of Jubilee, you loan them money. Don't not give a loan to a poor person for fear of, hey, you know, Jubilee is just three months around the corner. We're in October, the year of Jubilee is in January. If I loan this guy who's in need money, I know it's all wiped out, so I'm not going to give money because I want to get my money back. Bible says, no, you give the loan. The idea behind this, it, it, I don't know about you guys, and I don't want to make fun of anything, but I, used to, I, I kind of came to Christ. Um, the Bible that I started on was the NIV. Then I became a Christian, and I started going to Bible college, and then in Bible college and seminary, I started to, to see, well, then I met my brother-in-law. 
he's really the first one. Then all these people started making fun of the NIV, and it bugged me. I'd see them, and they'd say, oh, you use the nearly inspired version. I'm like, what are you talking about? I love it. It makes sense to me. The King James Version isn't doing anything for me. I don't understand what it is. We sing hymns, and I love hymns, but it's been funny. Like, like, a, like the last few weeks, we've had to kind of stop worship and say, there's this word. I don't even remember what the word is. Do you guys remember the word? I didn't even test the last service. Dan, do you remember the word? Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Yeah, we were supposed to lay our Ebenezers down, right? Razor Ebenezers. What is an Ebenezer? You told us, and I still don't remember. So, so we had to stop and explain what this meant. And, and, and translating is a terribly difficult thing. Just going from one language to another language in present tense, that doesn't, it just isn't easy. You don't just cut and paste. If you know people that speak two languages, they'll always say to you, oh, there's this saying in Spanish. And then they say it to you in English, and it just doesn't work. And so they've got to reconfigure the whole thing to make to explain it. I remember when we were in Spain, this last trip in Spain, my Spanish has really come along. I've really been practicing. I can't wait to go back the next time because I'm going to take it up a whole couple notches. Normally, when I'm in a foreign country, what I do when I'm dealing with their funny money is whatever I want to buy, I recognize how much money I have. And when I make the purchase... I make it in my mind willing to give up all of the money I handed them. Any change I get back is just bonus. Like It's like, hey, whoa, I get this much back? Thanks, man. Get none back? That's what it cost. But so I, we pulled into this gas station. We'd been there for a few weeks. My Spanish is coming along. My confidence was building. And I said, Anna, you stay here with Grace and the kids. I'm going to pay with 50 euros. I know I only need about 10 euros worth of gas. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to pay. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to get the change on my own. And so I, I pump the gas. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, I can do it. I can do it. So I pump the gas, get my 10 euros worth. And then I lean into her. I'm like, Anna, como de CD say in espanol change? She's like, change? Like, what do you, like, she, she gives me a word. And so I walk into the store. And it was really bad. I was sort of banking on that it would be the same cashier, but it was a different cashier. So now it's an older Spaniard guy. There's a bunch of like Spanish truck drivers in there. I'm like, hola. Uh, Tienes mi dinero. And I said the word for change. I said something for change. And the guy's looking at me, scratching my head, kind of smirking. And, and, he, and he asked me to repeat it. And I, I sort of had the phrase that I was supposed to say. I'd, I'd memorized what I was going to say. I said it. I was expecting just to say it and for him to give me my change. But then he asked me a question, which means that we have to go back to square one. But I'm not prepared to go back to square one. And so I'm like there. I'm like, yo. And I'm talking through all of this stuff. And the guy's like, then he's talking faster. And I'm like. And then all of the trucker drivers are trying to like say their part and they're all laughing and cracking up. I'm looking out at Anna and I'm like, I'm not going to do the walk of shame. I don't want to go out there. And Anna's like looking at me because she can see the crowd of people in there. And I'm like, I got, I can't. And then I'm, then the guy's like, I'm like doing this number. I'm doing it. And he's like, and then I'm like, Anna, come on. 
I like stood at the door, watched the kid. She came in and she says like three words. And then the guy's like, everybody's laughing. He's like, ah, I was telling him that I wanted to change my clothes or something like that. Like, not that I wanted my money back. And the guy's like looking at me. But for us, change means that leftover money. And in Spanish, there's another phrase, not to change your clothes. Like, I, I don't know what it is. But there's difficulty. In, in, so when we look at our translations, the translations that we have, they're all good. And so when one person says, well, I, I really like the way this translation says it. I'm not knocking any of their translation. The New American Standard is a very, the one I preach out of, it's very word literal. It could be rough around the edges because it's just giving word for word. If you go to like a New Living Translation, it's giving more thought for thought, trying to convey the idea behind it. And so in this week, I've been studying, I've been reading this, and it says, owe nothing to anyone. And if you were to take this in its right context, you, you could... You could get the right idea from this, but I think because of all the teachers who I think are teaching incorrectly, saying, hey, a Christian should never, ever, 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 under no circumstance be in debt, it's easy to say, but this is just plain as day. It says, owe nothing to anyone. If you make it say anything else, no, owe nothing to anybody. But now when you go to the Greek, it's in the present active indicative, this, this continual state of owing. And so then I have this sort of like this outside Bible of mine. It's my working Bible. It's one of my NIVs. It literally is outside. So when it rains, it gets rained on. And so I go out there. I'm like, oh, we had rain. My Bible. And I'm like having to like peel the pages apart. And I look at it. And the way the new and the, the NIV, the most recent translation of the NIV, it did a beautiful job on the first verse here. It takes this phrase, oh, nothing to anyone. And it says, let no debt remain outstanding. And the idea is that you have this debt that's this perpetual burden on you that you're never paying down. Our housing boom, one of the big loans that they were doing that got a lot of people into a lot of trouble. Oh, house prices are going up. It's never going to end. Here's this house. You can't afford it. But what we'll do for you is we'll give you an interest only loan. You just pay the interest. Which means that the principal, the amount you borrowed, never, ever, ever, ever goes down. Except in three years, it's going to skyrocket on the interest rates on you. Now, I'm not even saying that those are bad. If you're a multimillionaire, there's plenty of millionaires that buy property and say, I need an interest-only loan just for three years because at the end of the three years, I'm going to put down to pay the $2 million for this piece of property. I'm sure it's how Romney operates or something. I just saw his house got remodeled. But, But... you, you have to use wisdom. But a lot of people said, well, I'm just going to pay the interest. The, house, the housing market can't collapse. And in three years, I'm just going to refinance, take out all this money. I'll be a millionaire and we'll walk out. Well, what happened? A bunch of people lost houses. And he says, don't remain under debt. If you borrow your lawnmower from your friend, don't just take claim uh, ownership as 90% of the law, right? Or 90 per, possession is 90% of ownership. It's in my garage. It became my lawnmower. It's like, no, give it back. Or you take a loan, chip away, make progress at paint it off. C- certainly this church was in debt at one time. It was wise. In order to get this building to meet at, we had to be in debt. We're no longer in debt, but 
we need to be wise and responsible. And he's saying, don't continually stay under debt. If you're in debt, you should be paying it off, getting out from under it. But the point, like I said, has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with love. It says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He says there's one debt, there's one burden that is literally an interest-only loan. You will never, ever pay it off, and you will always be under it. And this debt is love. Paul's already used this term debt, this indebtedness, this perpetual indebtedness that he's under. If you'll turn back with me to Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, there's some great, beautiful, devotional, like I think, devotional statements of Paul, his I am statements. And in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation. Literally, I think, I forget which translations, but some translations render it, I am a debtor, that I am in debt. I cannot ever get out from under this debt. What is his debt? His debt is to, to Greeks, to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So, so for my part, the other I am statement, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is beautiful. Paul, the Pharisee, the teacher of the law, attacking the church, thinking that he was righteous in his own works, thinking that he'd attained perfection. He thought he was blameless. Then he meets Jesus. Jesus transforms his life. He is saved. He comes to understand that it's by grace that he's been set free from the burden of the law and trying to obey religion and doing works. He was set free. And then when he was set free, he's like, I now have this burden. I'm now going to go to all people and share this good news. Sin is far dead. Like far worse than any disease you can name. Our church family, we obviously have a member in our church that has cancer, bad cancer. It's, it's horrible to see cancer moving like this. And, and when they, I mean, they're doing all sorts of studies and eventually, you know, there'll be like this cure for cancer. People are going to be ecstatic. But the cure for sin is far greater than any cure for any disease and will ever have. Because ultimately, the gospel is the cure for all diseases. Because our hope is not in this life. It's in the next life with Christ, with our transformed bodies. And Paul says, I have the answer. And I'm going to give my life. And he gave his life sharing the gospel because he's in debt to share this good news. This is love that is not like love in our culture. Ann and I will both drive through the In-N-Out Burger we love these burgers. We both love them. And then we'll look at each other and say, I love you, sweetie. It's like, are we saying the same thing? I don't know. It's a pretty good burger. I don't like, where, where she's even going, ah. But you get the idea. We've used love for, love is a feeling. Love is a an emotion. Mostly we use love in a feeling for something that someone else does to us. Often it's lust. If you'll turn with me back to one of the Gospels in John chapter 13. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
And in Luke or John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35, the setting is, is that we're at the Lord's Supper. The apostle John, of all of the apostles, he spends his, the most of his writing on this last evening, this last supper with Jesus. He spends a quarter of his book recalling the events from when they went in to sit down for dinner until they left. Four chapters. And I think that the, that night transformed John's life. He was this fiery young guy that was all filled with passion and wanting to, to have God's lightning bolt come down and just fry away all the Samaritans. And But suddenly this night, something changes. John is now known for being what? The apostle of love. In all of his writings, he only refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even say his own name. He's just a guy that his creator loved. In all of his writings, he emphasizes love one another, love one another, love one another. And I think it all began right in this verse. So there they are at the Lord's Supper. And it says in verse uh, 33, Jesus says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. Suddenly he brings up this new commandment. This new commandment is dealing with the commandment that Paul writes about in our verses in Romans. It was the greatest commandment they had, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. To love one another as you desire to be loved. But notice the shift. The new commandment, there's a change in the command from Jesus. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That sounds the same. We all, that's an old command. This is the new part. Even as I have loved you, it's no longer to love one another as you desire to be loved. It's to love by the standard that Jesus loved us, which raises the bar. Jesus's love is totally selfless, completely sacrificial, has our best interest in mind. His that you love one another, either, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, if you guys just simply love as I loved, you're going re- to transform the whole world. People will know that you're of me. And if you follow their lives, you'll see that unfold. Now, going back. To Romans chapter 13. I need to point something out to you. Dealing in the Greek text. I, I, a lot of times when I go back to the Greek. I know there's like three of us that care. This one I think that it's huge for all of us. Now notice what it says. It goes from owe nothing to anyone. Except to love one another. Kind of that one another. Keep your eye on the other, another. Kind of mark that word. Then he continues and he says, for the one who loves his neighbor, the, the New American Standard goes a different route with this. It, it, it uses neighbor. Right? It's trying to convey from the, the original language, because if we were going to go word for word in the Greek, what we would see is owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's the same English word. However, in the Greek, there are two very different words. The first, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. This is your own kind. If you're a Christian, these are 
to love Christians, to love those that are like you. The next is another is another that's not like you. It's different than you. When I look at this, it's, a, it's, a, it's another of a different kind. Which makes this love a little bit even more difficult. Because it's easy to love those that are like us. But when we start thinking about loving others that are, say, maybe not on the same position of your political spectrum. That share a different skin color. A different nationality. Different religious views. Different sexual orientation. How does that sort of love work itself out? As I've been thinking about this, it reminds me of the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, it's interesting. This parable that Jesus spoke in our culture today, it doesn't matter if you go to church, if you have a church background. We all know the idea of a Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan is somebody who intervenes and does something that they really had no obligation to do. It all comes from this story. And in looking at this story, it begins, Jesus is there with a bunch of religious leaders. Our text reads, a lawyer. A lawyer was a scribe, that who took the Bible and laid out instructions for how the law was to be fulfilled. They told people how it was to be interpreted. And so they're in this setting, and you get the picture that all of the Pharisees and scribes are sitting down because one stands up. And this lawyer stands up, putting Jesus to the test. Never a smart move. He wants to put Jesus to the test. He asks a very innocent question, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? On the surface, this is this seems like a legitimate question. But the scripture reveals that this the intent, the heart of this attorney, this lawyer, was basically to trip up Jesus, to make an accusation against him. And so Jesus, I don't know, it doesn't say there, but I imagine this guy, maybe he stands up, he's got the phylacteries, you know, the little boxes with the, the, the black tape all over on their forehead, all decked out. They have the word of God on their, all about them. I mean, he sees this guy, and I don't know if that sparked the question, but this guy was a scribe. He was an expert in the law. And here he's asking Jesus, somebody from Nazareth, how do, how do you get eternal life? And I love the power of Jesus' questions. There's so much that we can use as Christians when we're trying to share our faith. You can get a long way by asking people questions. We're so ready to give our spiel and we fail to ask questions to figure out where they're coming from. I'm guilty of it. And look at in verse 26. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? What does the Bible say? What's your interpretation of the things that the Bible says? Jesus, that was brilliant. And look how the guy answers. What would be in the phylacteries, what would be in the mezuzah, every Jewish home, you go to Israel, every doorpost has the mezuzah, which has this verse in it. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5. And he says, he answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus basically says, attaboy, you did a great, that's perfect. In his response, he's going to quote from, I believe it's Leviticus 19.18. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. In Leviticus, God had given all the commands. At the very end, he says, I've laid out my instructions to you. If you do them, you'll find life. Jesus says, you've answered perfectly. Go ahead and do it and you'll find life. Now the attorney is sitting there going, oh man, because he has a problem. Who? <laughs> Who exactly is our neighbor? The, the, the scribes had it all spliced out. If your neighbor was a tax collector, even a family member, that guy didn't count. You, you could disown him. You could have a family member across or somebody that went to your synagogue across the way. They were your neighbor. You could have a Samaritan. I don't know. Like, they're were, there were very detailed in who qualified as a neighbor and who wasn't a neighbor. And Jesus says, just do it and you'll live. Modern day would be asking, well, is neighbor, does that count like a, the people with rainbow flags in Hillcrest? Are, are those our neighbors, Jesus? What about the people in Escondido that only speak Spanish? What about that cowboy that lives next door to me with all the horses? What about the people up in Palma Valley? What about the people on the reservations? Or flip-flop that. Are they our neighbors? Do they count? Or are we exempt? We're great at justifying ourselves, and that's exactly what this guy is trying to do. Verse 29, by wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus isn't going to answer this question. He's, he's going to tell a story that's more powerful than giving the answer. And Jesus replied, and a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It, was a, it still is a very steep road. Think about going to the top of the Palomar, coming down Palomar Mountain, that sort of like incline. It was dangerous as a place for robbers, and, and that's exactly what happens in the story. A, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now notice the story. This is a, a Jewish man is beaten up by a bunch of robbers. He's on the side of the street. He says a priest. Certainly the context of the people that Jesus is talking to. There's a bunch of priests there. These are their pastors, the teachers of the law. And he says a priest comes and sees a fellow Jew. And he basically goes to the other side of the street and he keeps going. And then the next person who comes is a Levite, somebody of the priestly line, not necessarily a priest. And he responds in the same way. And then a third person comes, a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan was half Jewish, half Gentile, but the Jews hated them and they hated the Jews. They were referred to as dogs. And so now we see the Samaritan on a business trip. I'm assuming, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. 
And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. He bandages this guy up. He gets him a room in the hotel. He goes to the innkeeper, gives him medicine, supplies, food. Take care of this guy. I'm going on a business trip. I'll be back in a few days. If my supplies run out, you pay for anything he needs. And when I come back, I will foot the bill in full. Take care of him. And so telling the story, then Jesus turns to the attorney, to the lawyer, and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in robber's hands? And here's this attorney. He doesn't like, oh man, Jesus, totally backed me into a corner. I can't say the priest. I can't say the Levite. Clearly, it's the Samaritan proved to be a neighbor. And he said, verse 37, the one who showed mercy towards him. I almost, I'm reading in the text, but I sense like, well, I guess it's the one who showed compassion to him. It's like that, like the, the heart of this. And then Jesus says, go and do the same. Now, going back to Romans, And we read Romans verse 8. And I want to read the whole NIV sort of in context because this, this whole verse, it did very well. And NIV, it reads, <clears throat> let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And so we get the picture of we're to have no debt except the debt of love. And, and this debt of love is to be paid back to those who are within the body of Christ, those who are like us, and the others who are not like us. And in loving in this way that Jesus describes back in the, the story of the Good Samaritan, he says that this love actually fulfills the law. What was the purpose of the law? In Galatians 3.24, we're told that the law is a schoolmaster, a teacher, an instructor, never to save us. Never. You can't be saved by following the law. And if you were to say, oh, you can be saved by doing the law, you would see that you would fall short because the whole purpose of the law is this to, to, to show this light on you and to show all of your sin and your imperfections and to show you that you can't meet the standard. But what it does is it points you to Christ and that he's the answer. And here it says that that love fulfills the law leading people to Christ. It's powerful. I remember when I started going to church because my friend who I've told the story a million times to you guys, but it's my story. I'm not making up new stories along the way. He nagged me to go to church. And when I, I, I left the Catholic church, not, not for doctrinal reasons, I left it out of boredom. Like I was bored to death in the Catholic church. And then as I left the Catholic church, I grew angry towards all religion because of my experience there. I wanted nothing to do with religion. I thought because of my experience there. But then this friend just kept nagging me to go to church. And so finally, when I conceded to go that one time, I was like, I'm going to wear... A t-shirt, shorts, flip-flops. And if I'm hungover and smell like beer, it doesn't matter. That's how I'm going. And I'll only do it if you promise never to ask me to go to church again. I said, fine. And I tell you, going to that church was my, I had a horrible attitude 
no Bible. There was free pizza. I liked that part. But I went put a dime in to pay for the pizza. I was going to let them pay for my pizza, which they were fine with. But they just kept like, they were like so nice. They did it like, like my big thing to like offend everybody by wearing shorts and flip-flops. It's like, that's what they were all wearing. They didn't care. There were homeless guys coming. There were guys in like suits. They didn't seem to, to care about the clothing. They cared about the person behind the clothing. And I went angry, but man, that love just broke me down eventually. And eventually I came to know the person who loved them that gave them that love to display to me. Now I'm a pastor and it's a big jokes on me. You know, here I am. But it was all through their love towards me. And love is powerful. Now, now does this mean that? See, because in our world, in our culture, we talk about love. And that means tolerance. That means compromising of convictions. And so is this love that's being mentioned here, does that mean that if we're to love, we need to do like, like very liberal churches, the media, the coexist stickers and the tolerance stickers? Does that mean that we just need to just be a happy camper? You believe what you believe. They believe what they believe. Just tell everybody that everything's good. That's not at all what this is saying. Remember, go back to uh, Romans twelve nine. We the very context of love. Look what it says: Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Th- th- this isn't this isn't a love that tells you to compromise. To tell you to give people like attaboys. That's okay. You're in terrible sin, but go on and do it because I love you. When I was in high school, my junior year, I started my, I'd been dabbling with alcohol and then I started dabbling with some guys that were smoking pot and getting tattoos. And then I started smoking pot and getting a tattoo at the time was my first one. Then I smoked pot the first time. I was like, ah, this isn't a big deal. Then I smoked pot a second time. I'm like, this is kind of funny. Like then I like smoked pot a third time. Then I start, I'm going down this road. I didn't, and I really wasn't smoking pot that much. But there was like this short window when I started really hanging out with a bunch of friends that were encouraging me down this road. And I had a very dear friend of mine challenge me. We're like 17-year-old kids. And he basically pulled me up, grabbed me by the shoulders and threw me against the wall and said, Dude, what are you doing? I was like, ah... I don't know, man, you're right. And I stopped. And the question is, who was more loving to me? The person, the people that were like, ah, it's cool. You know, you're experimenting or the person who basically came to my face and said, you're wrong. Cut it out. He's the one that loved me. And it's funny. He's the one that's still in my life today. Proverbs 27, six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So love doesn't mean necessarily tolerance. And how this works out, it's diff, it's it's difficult. But you can love somebody. It doesn't mean that you have to compromise what you believe or even say that, hey, what you're wrong. I, I, it's hard. But we need it even as parents. I have two children, the older and the younger, who are very much like me. They're more confrontational. 
It's much easier for me to parent and to discipline that type of personality than it is with the middle one who has this blonde curly hair you guys might have seen around here. After we send her to bed, she comes out. Hi, Dad. Go to bed or you're going to get a spanking. Stern as I can be. She's like, okay, Dad. She kind of like takes a step and shuts the door, then opens the door. Hi, Dad. Go to bed or I'm going to give you a spanking. And I was like, you just said that. I'm like, I know, I'm saying it again. She, <laughs> then she comes back. Hi, Dad. I'm like, I just, can I get a hug? And it's like, oh, come on, I'll give you a hug. I know I'm being manipulated. <laughs> and I know it's not loving of me to allow her to manipulate me. Disciplining is never easy. But the Bible tells us that God disciplines us because he loves us and we should discipline our kids out of love. And from this sort of this love. Those within the body, it's easy. Those outside of the body, I'm not saying it's easy. I, I have I have a family member. She's lesbian. She's married to her girlfriend or her whatever. I'm, see, I'm in struggle with stuff like this. Because I don't believe what that is is what it is. And I do my best to love, to stay as much as I can. And I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting it's easy. I do have one friend at 60 years old who decided that he was going to go from a he to a she. Very difficult. I've had a lot of conversations with this person. And the one thing I appreciate about this person is they understand, they are able to say, I know you disagree with everything, but I, you love me, and so we can still dialogue. Very rare that that happens. So loving while maintaining convictions can be a, a difficult, difficult thing. Clearly, we, the Bible, we are to love those that are not like us, that think differently, that have different political bent, that have different moral bearings, or maybe there's no moral bearings at all, really. But then he says he goes on to describe this love, quoting from the Ten Commandments. And he says, for this, verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want to sort of address this backwards. He ends this with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's sort of a good premise. We know how we want to be treated. And so then we don't treat others in a way that we would not want to be treated. And the, and the, the next one up the order, it says, is um, not to covet. And what is coveting? Coveting is looking at your neighbor saying, they have that and I want that. And you might not be able to get that. And what is marketing in our culture? Marketing is stirring up coveting in our minds. And I said it wasn't dealing with the passage, but it's a very real thing. But when we covet and you can't get it, how do we resolve that problem? Easy financing. Easy financing is not easy. It always backfires because they want payment after payment after payment after payment after payment 
And then when you're 106 years old, you'll enjoy it outright. But, but we have coveting. And, it's, and, and, and say you've worked hard and God's blessed you and you have this. You, you, you don't want people coveting you. There's people I know that have been blessed tremendously. That, that have worked hard. And I look at my generation, I look at my, my grandparents, and they've worked hard. They have their houses. They've they put a tremendous amount of work. And my generation wants to just bypass all of the work that went into that and just skip ahead. And it gets everybody in trouble. Moving backwards, still on the list, it's coveting. If you can't finance it, then they're stealing. How many of you, after grocery shopping, walk out in the parking lot and go, Somebody stole my car. It's ridiculous. Why would they steal my car out of all of these way nicer ones? And then you're looking at all the nice ones like, oh, there's my car. I know he stole my car. But in that moment when I think my car is stolen, I'm so angry. It's my car. Why would they take that? My brand new Echo Weed Whacker that was stolen right after moving into our new house. You don't want your stuff stolen, so don't steal other people's stuff. Murder, there's a difference between murder and killing. But mur- anybody here want to be murdered? Not one person raised their hand in the last service. So don't do it to anybody else. <laughs> Benjamin volunteered. So, <laughs> old-fashioned stoning afterwards. <laughs> Stealing, murder. Then adultery is one of these that is delicate issue it's affected a lot of people adultery we think to think oh these two people they want to do this it's it's consensual but who does adultery affect it affects everybody assuming there's a spouse their parents their kids grandparents some cases, adultery for generations will cause problems. We look at the life of David and Bathsheba. It started with coveting. He sees this girl. The Bible doesn't say anything bad about Bathsheba. You could make the case from the words that are used that she literally could just be on the patio washing her face. We seem to think it's like a Victoria's Secret commercial with the shower running and her dancing around and like she's the guilty one. Likely that wasn't the case. She's a Jewish girl. Likely she was up there washing her face. Totally appropriate in the context. He sees it. He's like, I want it. I want that. So then he steals her. And then what does this stealing lead to? Leads to murder. And because we don't know our genealogies, if you look at genealogies, this had a rippling effect, the consequence. He lost the child that came from that. Many years later, the the kingdom is ripping apart from David's control and people are turning on him. One of his most trusted leaders essentially stabs David in the back, Ahithophel. Do you guys know who Ahithophel was? Bathsheba's grandpa. There's a whole, you could do a whole study on bitterness and anger. But to think that adultery is only between two people without any sort of rippling effect is a terrible thing. The bottom line is you don't want to be treated like that. 
You don't want your, or any of these things. It's not love. Look what it says next in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And love in our culture is so backwards. If you turn with me to the next book, Romans 13, I know Ben uh, referenced this passage, but this is really such a great instruction, instruction manual for what love is. And in the first three verses, there's a bunch of ifs. In the Greek text, you can use the word if. There's, there's like five different ways that all translate in the English if. Some are the first class condition, which is a true if, saying like how we use the word if, or first class condition is, I take that back, first class condition for the two of you that care. You could translate since. It means if and it is, if and it's not is a second class, and then there's a bunch of different ways. The way this is being used is hyperbole. He's not saying that he actually has any of these things. He's speaking in this exaggerated exaggeration to make a point and the point is dealing with love look at what he says if i speak with tongues of men and of angels but do not have love i have become a noisy gong or a clangy symbol if i have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if i have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. For love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know Fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Beautiful. Love, it's, it's personified. It's almost like a person. It's not a feeling or a hamburger. It's this that looks for the best interest of the other. At its own expense. This is a love that goes against our culture. If you guys see the news, I'm not even sure that my mind is fully wrapped around the the details. I've seen it repeat a bunch of times. And as the story's unfolding, it happened in New York. It's this car with all the motorcycles. You guys read about this or seen this? 
when I first saw this, I thought this car like ran over a guy on a motorcycle and then he just took off and the rest of the motorcycles chased after him and hauled him out and basically arrested the guy. That's how I first thought it was. But then as the story's unfolding, it was like the motorcycles were blocking traffic and this guy tries to get around and then he gets around and then this whole herd of motorcycles basically pins the guy in rips the guy out of the front seat while his wife and child are in the car and start beating him one of these bikers is like an undercover police officer that's causing all sort of brouhaha was like was he that for somebody that's undercover there's a whole bunch of different laws for how they're to act and it was bad the driver of this car ends up in the hospital. And, and how did the whole thing stop? Do you know how it stopped? It was one guy. Some middle-aged guy in like, like a businessman sort of jacket basically steps in and says, stop it. It's enough. He wasn't armed. He had nothing. And basically it broke up the crowd. And that sort of love basically goes against our culture. Because we don't know love. I saw another thing in the paper that there was a murder in a train or a subway or a bus. And there were other people and they didn't even notice because they're all on their phones. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And look what it says. 13, the very last part of verse 10. It says, therefore, love has the fulfillment of the law. If we go out of our way and we love both those within the body of Christ and those outside of the body of Christ in in this way that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and as Jesus commands us to. We will fulfill the law. Think about it. I have no idea. This guy who interrupted everything that was going on, this guy goes to his hospital. I don't know if he's a Christian but, but whatever he is, let's just assume he's a Christian. It works better for the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> Do you think that this guy would have access to go to his room to say, hey, I'm glad you're doing okay? And the guy says, what in the world, like what caused you to do that? So I would like to tell you about Christ. The reason I did that is because like, I've experienced the love of God and God values life and I want, like, I, that's why I intervene. I think the guy, he may reject the gospel, but I think certainly as people receive this sort of biblical love, they certainly will be open to listening about it. I mean, Peter writes about this. Live your lives in a way that, so that when you're asked, you'll have a, a reason. The assumption is that you're living differently than the culture, that the culture says, what's wrong with you? And you say, this is what's right with me, is that I know Jesus. Now, I'm simply going to close with like a like homework assignment. And I saw on Facebook by somebody I barely know. I mean, I've talked to them on the phone. We have mutual friends, but she was like a, a radio person. And I was interviewed by her boss. She was on the radio, but she's like a behind the scenes person. Um, real godly girl. And her birthday was this week. And about three weeks ago, she said, hey, guys, don't be sending me Facebook messages of happy birthday. She's like, what I want you to do is on the day of my birthday, go out and just do some random act of kindness 
love somebody in a different way. And then on my birthday, will you tell me what you did? And I'm like, that's awesome. I'll do it. Well, I never even made it out on her birthday. So I'm like still delinquent. But I tell you that ever since I read that, as I'm going out, it sort of changes how you look at the world around you. There are people that are hurting all around you. They think, how can I bless or encourage that person in the church and outside the church? And I'd ask you to pray about it and to respond this week. How can you love somebody that's a believer this week? How can you love somebody that's not a believer? I don't know. But I know that I'm looking, and I guarantee you that there are opportunities all around you. The problem isn't with seeing the opportunities. It's the stepping out by faith and actually being nice to somebody. It's hilarious. I mean, I'm talking about myself. The last time I did this, my big goal was like, I'm going to buy a cup of coffee for the guy behind me in Starbucks. And then I get in line at Starbucks, and then the guy behind me was sort of like a weirdo. (laughs) It was Larry. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> and I'm like, do I really want to do this? Why? Am I? But even to like to do something nice in our world. I remember before I moved to Valley Center, I would climb Cow's Mountain all the time. And my big goal to freak people out climbing Cow's Mountain, my goal is just to say hello to everybody. Do you know how weirded out people get in our Southern California just by saying, good morning, how are you doing? That guy must be some sort of like, I don't know. Like I... So, Father, we do thank you. Lord, um, we've received your love through Christ. And so, Father, we, um, we really can't even imagine, Lord, how great your love, how deep your love is for us. But, Lord, when we've received it, Lord, we feel it and we know it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to let our guards down, Lord. We are so entrenched in this culture that we're in. Father, we pray that that we as citizens of heaven, Lord, would be transformed by your law, by your desire of us to be loving and kind and, and to reach out to not only those within the church, but those who don't know you. Father, I pray two things, that you would help us to see opportunities and to lord that you would give us the courage to respond to those opportunities you've placed us in this world in this time and in our network of friends and people and so lord we pray that you would just change our hearts lord that love would radiate from us that it wouldn't be fake that it would just be genuine we thank you lord and we ask this in christ's good name amen